because I've seen it work as both a life philosophy and a kind of daily practice. And it's brought so much enthusiasm to my life, so much hope, so much joy. And I've seen it with so many others. I feel like if that can be like imbued in like, you know, school systems and universities and companies, it's really about this kind of reframing the uncertainty and the unexpected from a threat into an ally. And I feel like there's so much in there when I look at kids nowadays and the kind of the fragility of the world, right? And the fragility of everything. And I think as long as we educate people into this idea of you can plan things and like you can map all this out and then the opposite happens and it has this cognitive dissonance in everyone. You're like, no, like let's be more realistic about how life really happens. I think it, it gives us this kind of like liberation that it is okay to sometimes wing it. And it doesn't mean you're out of control. It just means that you let go of your illusion of control. And I think that is really kind of, um, to me, at the at the core of this to embrace this as, a, as an active style to lead during uncertainty rather than something that just is passive and happens to us. This week's guest, Dr. Christian Bush, describes himself as a practical philosopher. He's also author of the new book, The Serendipity Mindset, and director of NYU's Global Economy Programme. In this absorbing interview, Christian describes his upbringing in Germany to a cerebral intellectual father, an empathetic and loving mother. We cover serendipity throughout the interview, but if you want to jump forward to where we get into the specifics of the serendipity mindset, head to around 40 minutes in. Christian explains how the serendipity mindset is grounded in creating the structures and mindsets that enable people to create their own luck, and I ask Christian to explain the role of procrastination in serendipity, and what he calls productive procrastination. He sets out why spotting something unexpected and connecting the dots when you see them is key to the serendipity mindset and explains why sagacity and tenacity are core elements to unlocking serendipity and why we need to avoid seeing life as linear and more a series of random twisting lines and being prepared to see failure as an opportunity. Christian also covers fear of failure, loss and overcoming self-limiting beliefs and worthiness and Christian also discusses the role of his work in changing organisational behaviour. We also touch on polarisation, diversity, inclusion and seeking common denominators to solve our contemporary challenges. Finally, we cover serendipity scores and the value of reframing behaviours. Christian describes how as a daily habit and a life philosophy it can transform how we view uncertainty and the unexpected from a threat to an ally. I hope you're empowered by the mind-altering playbook of Dr Christian Bush. Christian, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I don't think there could be a better guest for the beginning of season three for someone that's written a book recently called uh, The Serendipity Mindset. But we, are, we, always, go, we always start the podcast um, by diving into people's life journey up to what they're doing now. Now, I know you, you're um, a lecturer or you teach or you, you work at NYU uh, currently and you're based here in New York. But I don't know how to describe your life. Is it a life in education? Is it a life in networking? Is it a life in consulting? Or are you an author? Or are you all these things? Because I think you talk about that in your book in terms of how people describe themselves. So how would you describe yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would say a practical philosopher. You know, I try to both be inspired by philosophy and the big questions of why and, you know, trying to understand meaning in the world and imbue meaning in, in things and people. And at the same time, then be pragmatic about, okay, what are things we can do in our lives to really kind of move things forward. And I think, to your point, the way that I've looked at the world since the last kind of 15 years or so um, has been to think about these different things more as platforms and less as kind of industries or other things. And so in a way, if you have an idea like around that cultivating serendipity or around, in my case, a lot of it was around like, how do you imbue meaning and, and impact? And, uh, you know, then you have all these different platforms like education institutions or companies and depending on what feels like has the biggest impact at which point in time you kind of go from one to the other. And so I think that's been the journey. Very interesting. So 
perhaps you could take us back to your the beginning of your journey uh, in Heidelberg in Germany and talk about how your parents' support and their direction had an impact on the, the journey you've taken. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I feel the quote-unquote older I get, the more I have conversations also with my parents about how I want to be as a father and, and how I, you know, once that kind of uh, is, is more on the horizon. And um, I, I found it fascinating because I think my my parents have been very um, nurturing in their approach in terms of very, you know, I, I was a very rebellious teenager. I, I pushed all boundaries you can push. I, uh, you know, I was the kind of kid who had to repeat a year in high school. I was thrown out of school at some point. I, you know, I, I literally kind of tried to get away with whatever you can get away with um, and sometimes didn't get away with it. Um, but they always kind of gave me that feeling of, hey, whatever you're doing, we don't agree with what you're doing at the moment, but we still love you and we still think you're amazing and we still think you, you, you will do amazing things in the world. And so I think when I think about that today, that kind of like self-worth that I feel, and you know, there's always a bit of, I always have this kind of small imposter type syndrome in me somewhere hidden in the back. But at the same time, I also have this kind of belief of everything is possible and I can't really fail, fail because everything that doesn't work out in a way becomes a learning opportunity. I think that's what I got from my parents, this idea that, look at failure as experimentation rather than as something that, that kind of you know brings you down. What were their backgrounds and careers and stories? Well, my dad had a, had a very curious one. He grew up on a farm, so he was kind of more on that kind of very physical work side. And then he um, went into industry and marketing and things. And then he ended up in academia. And so I think from him, I have this kind of whole idea of that in a way, how do you resonate with different types of values, right? The values when you're on a farm are very different from the values when you're in academia. In academia, you value knowledge, you value understanding, versus when you're on a, on a field, it, it isn't as relevant as if you know about Socrates, right? It's about like, how, how do you get that crop to like really grow into, into something? And so I've, I've always seen that in him, something that I see in myself as well, that I think we are kind of on a journey of trying to figure out like, where do we feel home? How do we feel home? And do we actually feel home? Or is it more people than who make us feel home? Because we had to kind of negotiate all these different fields in some way and, and find that more maybe in a person than in a, in a certain context. And your mother? My mom is like, like the exact opposite of my dad. My dad is this kind of like very cerebral, intellectual kind of person who like, you know, wants to have dinner conversations around the big themes in life and the big questions. And he's, he kind of always comes up with new ideas and connects dots. And it's fascinating to see how, how he's always on the ball. And it's, it's, it's been very inspiring to me, um, kind of how much resilience and how much, yeah, how many great ideas he, he always comes up with. And then my mom, he is, she's the kind of very empathic, loving, nurturing um, a, a woman who, who would be there and, and hold space for people. And, and um, I remember when I grew up, like she would always be there, like she, she, she would be there. And I think to me that always gave this, you know, if you think about, um, um, the kind of attachment that that, that you develop, I, th I feel like I always felt very safe because I knew she would be there, and and she always resonated with things. And her level of empathy is just out of out of this yeah. world. And let you push and the I boundaries that, of your behavior. <laughs> exactly. And I know that everyone says it, but but in my case, it's true that it, it is the best mom in the world. Like it's it's kind of you know, oh. yeah, she's she's just fantastic. I mean, if you would meet and, her. And what about siblings? I have a brother um, who is three years younger than me. And uh, he is also, I think he, he comes after both of them, but mostly my dad, in terms of he's, he's very into kind of think tanks and ideas and, and, and things around that. So what's, their, what's the family reaction to the book? 
you know, it was fascinating because I remember my dad calling me up when he read the book and he was like, Krishna, I finally understand you. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, look, like you always tell us about bits and pieces of your life and you, 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 you give us kind of small insights into like different periods and things, but, but you don't give us the whole picture all the time. And, and so I think um, that, that was also something where, why that book felt so um, intimate and it felt very vulnerable to me because there's so much of me in there. And so I think for him, it was also, and for them, it was a way to really kind of understand the context of why some things happened the way they happened and, and so on. Uh, and have they done their serendipity score? <laughs> That's a good question. I haven't asked them yet. You need to uh, ask them. You need to see, yeah, yeah. And get your brothers as well. Um, okay, so... In terms of their, I mean, they they obviously were very patient and they must have had their doubts about you at certain t- points in time. And I, I mean, I, I resonate with what you say because I was a fairly troubled teenager, let's say, in Scotland uh, and pushed the boundaries as well. And I think parents often sort of wonder what will become of their, their child. But did they have great expectations for you? And do you think which of the two has had the greatest impact on, on you and influence well, I will say that I think my father always, I think he had a strong idea that because he went through all these different areas, agriculture or farming and then kind of industry and then academia, that academia was the one space where you have real freedom, where you can really develop ideas when where you are your own boss versus everywhere else you're just you're working for someone all the time and, and so on. So, so I think he definitely instilled this inspirational element of, hey, look, like if you have the freedom or if you have the capacity to do that, like why why not try that at some point but at the same time like that was just something he very kind of subtly communicated i think in general he would always be like hey look um you know whatever you want to do in the world and you know that is very good inspired in a way that that you know there's potentiality and whatever you want to do you will do it and you can do it and i think so his kind of main theme always was whatever you do i think it's going to be nice and it's going to be great and we will support you and i think my mom had the similar kind of like on the emotional side especially that kind of sense of look like go out there and see what you can do and then whatever whatever you'll do it'll work out and i think I, that belief system really helped me i think because again if you're someone who pushes boundaries like you 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 step on toes all the time right and you kind of you you try to navigate things and so but having this belief that you can still do other things i think to me that was always very valuable i would normally wait a little bit further into the interview to get into into the book but something that struck me when i was cycling over the bridge to come here from Williamsburg was there there are plenty of people I know that are what you call intro I suppose introverts and uh, shrinking violets but incredibly successful incredibly driven very goal focused and go probably deep into their field and I'm just wondering when you talk about the serendipity mindset you talk about the the characteristics and the facets uh, that let's say the ingredients where does it leave people who are just natural introverts that will, will won't be the person talking in the kitchen at a party. They will be holding a drink in the corner, watching everything, thinking. Is that something you looked at when you were doing your research? Well, it's a great question. Also, especially, I mean, I'm I'm a closet introvert, right? So I have spikes of extroversion, but actually, I'm very introverted. So I'm kind of I'm giving a speech, and then afterwards, I hide in the bathroom type thing, right? So it's literally kind of the like you have spikes of extroversion and then at some point you just need space to kind of, you know, like regain energy. And, and, you know, I, I, that's why I'm so excited about this, this mindset because 
in a way it's 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 for both right like one is how can i as an introvert do more to kind of get myself into a more kind of you know like extrovert spirit and like do a couple of exercises to you know the way i meet people the way i ask questions and so on but then also i can just kind of the things i'm doing already as an introvert um already can help me a lot so for example I'm a big fan of if you anyways have a conversation, if you slightly adjust your questions or set hooks, like things like we can probably dive into that later, um, those kind of tactics, but really kind of these like small adjustments where things that you anyways would do, you anyways would have a conversation with your boss at some point. So why not leverage this for serendipity? Or you would anyways have to walk to work. So why don't you take the other street and then you see something in the bookstore and then you connect the dots. And I think that's something where if you see serendipity essentially as seeing and connecting dots. So essentially this kind of unexpected like moments that lead to positive outcomes because you made a proactive decision. You have to do something about it. And that is the beauty as opposed to blind luck, right? Which is all about just something happening to you. And if you think about where that comes from, a lot of times it comes from quote unquote silent sources like books, like something you see in the shop and everything else. So you don't have to let you interact with people, but you have to have that open mind and to your point or your curiosity to essentially wanting to see something in the unexpected and then actually doing something with it. And introverts actually are pretty good at that a lot of times. And, you know, I've always been grateful for introverts in my life because serendipity a lot of times takes time, right? And so having someone who is able to reflect with you over time and who helps kind of really imbue meaning in it can be much more effective than someone who's just running around and creates a lot of serendipity but doesn't really ground it. Obviously, if you read books about the great discoveries. I mean, there was a wonderful series I referenced a lot called Connections by in the BBC by a guy called James Burke, and it looked at the history of invention and the serendipity of the randomness, the supposed randomness of when things came together and the time it took to draw to connect the dots to great, create the great inventions that resulted in the great inventions. But I've been thinking a lot recently about procrastination. And we interviewed Andrew Santella, who wrote a book about procrastination on time, and he he really went deep into it. And it's often viewed negative with a ne- in a negative framework. You're a procrastinator. Oh, come on, get on with it. Just take action, do something. But I wonder if it's uh, it's actually it's a natural condition that is allowing us to come to the point at which we are able to connect the dots when the time is right. And it's something that we don't necessarily understand that might be somehow connected to, as you call it, the serendipity mindset. And I just wonder there, because if, you know, we all, I think we all, to a certain degree, suffer from procrastination. But often I've found that when I've written the best articles, it's often when I've been frustrated with myself, going, I've got to get on with this. And if finally I see something that then takes it in a different direction. And I just wonder if there's something underlying procrastination that it is actually there's a positive side to it rather than just the negative view that we often um, assign to it. Yeah, it's a great point because, I mean, I've, I've always been a big fan of, of, of productive procrastination in the sense of, you know, these things where, where in a way you are, to your point, like you are at a point, I mean, I've always had that with papers or things, you know, where in a way you go to, you come to a certain point and then you just know everything at this point, I will go in circles maybe, or there's just nothing at this point. So I need to put it away for now, go for a walk, do something else. And then at some point I will be in the shower and dots will connect, right? The subconscious will work for me. And I think I've been a big believer and that's in serendipity research. That's, that's one of these beautiful concepts around the, the incubation time of serendipity that in a way to your point, like if you would write a paper and you read all these different literatures and then you write something, 
And then, you know, your subconscious, though, probably has quite a bit of more information that you that you read that you're not even aware of. And if you give it a bit of space to kind of actually unfold, it can do something with it. And I think I, I recently, Adam Grant had, had, had something similar recently around how, in a way, procrastination can be really positive if you essentially, you know, do something, uh, if it is the right context, right? And so I've, I've been a big believer to your point that if, if you, in a way, don't do it as a life philosophy, but more in terms of if you productively use it, it can actually be surprisingly effective. Yeah, good. Well, let's just jump back to your, your childhood. So when you were at school, and being this maybe on a slightly troublesome and raucous and adventurous, let's say, were you at that point aware of your, let's say, academic direction? Was there a, an interest of where you were going to be taking your life? Did you sense that you would end up in a in a, a field like you have or was it th- or at that time were you just intent on becoming a punk rocker or whatever um yeah i mean at that point i literally had no idea i mean i had a lot of ideas of how to channel energy and i did a lot of different things i was very kind of involved in like a group that was into punk rock and reggaeton and reggae and everything else and so i was one of the number one groupies probably and we, we were doing a lot of things around this and then and that was more the kind of also like, you know, very left wing kind of questioning the government type 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 part. And then on the other hand, I would very early on enjoy kind of um, understanding the stock market or like working in a coffee shop. And so the kind of more capitalist type things. And so I've been, you know, exploring all these different areas during high school. And I, what I found fascinating about it is that I think I was literally just searching without direction for some kind of channel for my energy. And I didn't find it. And I think that's where... You know when certain incidents in my life happened including a car accident so it in a way triggered that idea of oh wow like if you could channel all that stuff like into something that actually is meaningful um how interesting could that be and so well that's a question that we have is that i mean i've i've heard some of your interviews before and obviously in the book of where of the car accident but that seems to be probably the defining memory or recollection from your early years that set you on a certain path so maybe you could just uh, describe what happened to our listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was literally when I was 18 and I was in that period of, you know, doing a lot of things and channeling energy and a lot of, like, you know, probably more questionable endeavors. And um, then one day we were hanging out. Um, I was hanging out with two friends and we were supposed to get some dinner and, um, you know, we drove through the city and, and I kind of was speeding up and then I didn't see that island, traffic island in the middle of the streets. And, uh, you know, smashed into four parked cars when I tried to, to, to surround it. And I, I, I will not forget the policeman. Like, so when it was in the car, the policeman came over uh, who came to the scene. He was like, wow, he's still alive. And so this idea of like, I was supposed to be dead, that really stuck with me. And there was kind of like that one sentence, like for a long time, I was thinking about it and, you know, raised a lot of questions like, okay, if I would have died, what it all, was it all worth it? Did I do anything meaningful? If I would run in front of a car tomorrow again, like, what would I do differently? Like a lot of these kind of questions that were like spinning around. And so I started reading Viktor Frankl's Search for Meaning and like really kind of that idea of how do you find meaning in crisis or meaning in difficult situations? And it kind of made me then, and, and to your earlier question, I think it made me then realize, okay, if I want to do something meaningful, I need to set myself up for it and I need to properly do something. And that's when, you know, I, I kind of, I, people who saw me then when I did my studies uh, old friends would be like Christian like when did you become such a nerd like how did that happen like you, you're so cool and now you're such a nerd but it was literally this where I was then 
I felt like, okay, my channel now has to be that I accrue whatever knowledge I can accrue that really helps me to do something in this world and, and does something. And then, you know, ended up community building and, and a social entrepreneur and so on. But it was really kind of, I feel these incidences that were about, wow, like life can be short and like, I might as well do something with it. Mm -hmm. Memento Mori. That's a close shave with death. Did you, um, I mean, were you badly injured or were you, were you just very lucky and you actually didn't have a scrape? Well, like whiplash, like the kind of small stuff. And I think mostly, I mean, I realized then psychologically it does something that, you know, a couple of things, but I think like nothing that, you know, I was extremely fortunate. Uh, but but I, I remember, I think one of the reasons also why I felt a lot of guilt was that um, my best friend at that time, uh, he was supposed to drive with me. And in the last second, he drove in the other car with, with my other friend, or he, he joined my other friend in the other car because he had forgotten his jacket in the other friend's car. And the passenger side where he would have sat was completely smashed and like literally um, it would have killed him, right? And so it's kind of this additional feeling of guilt of, wow, I would have killed him. And I think there's there's a lot of things around that that um, took some time to kind of um, make sense out of. Wow. So uh, when you said that suddenly uh, sh shifted gears and direction and your friends saw you suddenly becoming a studious nerd, um, where did you start? What were your interests back then in terms of, right, I'm going to make the most of my life? What did you throw yourself into? Because you went to university. Um, uh, my pronunciation is probably terrible. Some place called Hagen, or is it Hochschule Furtwangen? Perfect. Yeah. I mean, more or less. Like, you know? There you go. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's literally Furtwangen University. It's just Hochschule as in university. So you went to university there with a plan in, um, a plan in your head? So given the kid I was in high school, my grades were so bad that essentially I didn't have a lot of options, right? And so I had a sense, I mean, I was very interested in kind of in economy and business and also in politics and like, because that felt like the areas where you can shape things and do things and, and build things. So I, I applied to 40-ish universities and like literally sent the application everywhere, just kind of seeing. And then a few ended up kind of giving me offers. And, and I, re I remember... When I accepted, like, so Furtwangen, like, it was this cute, tiny university in, in Germany. And the reason I loved it was because it was a kind of, it was set up in a way that you would spend most of your time abroad. And so I picked Moscow and Mexico City. And, like, I loved it because it kind of, you know, gives you all the extremes. But at the same time, you can accrue knowledge and, and really learn something. But then, like, um, you know, it felt like, okay, if I only do this, then, yeah, like, I don't know how far I'd could get me because it wasn't as well known in university and so on. And so that's why this Hagen University came in as a kind of um, doing that at the same time and really saying, how can I, how can I then like do something in sociology, psychology uh, ish um, that also helps me to both understand it, but also to hopefully elevate a little bit um, the kind of learning experience. And also, you know, once I would graduate that it would give me a bit more access to, to, to other things as well. And so it was like, Long story short, like I didn't have a clear plan or something. It was more like very pragmatically saying, okay, this could be the best option and then and then going from there. There's one or the other. I mean, there's lots of over, um, overlapping concepts when you read the book, and I hope people do because um, I think it's an immensely valuable, um, almost like a tool set or a playbook for living a better life. But books like Grit by Angela Duck Duckworth or um, that's one that springs to mind, um, or even something like the surrender experiment um, that I read recently by, I think it's Michael Singer. There's sort of overlapping elements in there. It, it did make me wonder um, as to whether when you 
dedicated yourself to focus and to make the most of your life. Did you start goal setting and writing goals down at that early stage in your life? I mean, it's, it's interesting because like when I try to connect dots at hindsight now, you know, when I look at kind of CV and say, oh, how can I now imbue meaning into it? Depending on when I looked at it, I completely, you know, interpreted differently each time I look at it, right? Like each time I'm like, oh, yeah, probably at this time I did X, Y, Z. And so, you know, the, the most probable answer or the most probable thing that, that I can that I can talk about is is that I think at that time it was more an internal sense of, okay, this is an approximate direction, which is I want to like, like somehow shape something and this seems to be the thing that shapes it. And what's interesting is I think a lot of our work nowadays, which we'll probably talk about later when we talk about purpose and North Stars and so on, is about that idea that like, how do we have a certain sense of direction and at the same time open ourselves up for unexpected like things and encounters. And I feel most of my life has been completely unexpectedly taking me into all these different directions. And so most of the time I've, I've been winging it. Okay. Just one point there. Was there anyone in your life at that point who was influential, um, either as a mentor or as a, a coach or just someone that gave you inspiration to push you further and harder? There's there's quite a few people that, that come to mind, but I think one person, when I think about the last kind of 12 years, so, so after, I studied, after I finished studying and then kind of embarked more on like research and PhD and, and, and things like that, um, I will never forget the first time I started working in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where a lot of my work has now been uh, focused on. And, and I remember um, there's this wonderful um, gentleman who, who runs an organization that is in low-income education. And I asked him back in the days, like, okay, what is the one thing I, as the person coming into your context, should never ask you? And he was like, well, never ask me what I need, because if you ask me what I need, you put me into the position of the victim, of the beneficiary of someone who needs something from you. So don't ask me this as the first question. You can still ask me that later. But as the first question, ask me more something like, what is already here? What can we do with this? And then we can create something together. And I think to me now, when I think about these things, right, like how a lot of times I think we're coming in with good intentions and we... Um, we, we, we want to help, but actually what we don't realize is that if we push something on someone, um, actually it, it doesn't really help. It actually takes their agency away. And I think a lot of my work now and why I'm so excited about like serendipity mindset as like an active approach to creating your own luck and helping others create their own luck is that it is all about agency and dignity and saying, how, how do we develop both the structures, but also the mindset for people to create their own luck, especially also in contexts where it's really challenging. And so Marlon, this, this gentleman, he had a great impact on me because he essentially like imbued in me this idea of like, don't assume that you have a lot of answers. Like first go in there, see what's there, and then understand that like everything you're doing has to relate to that rather than the other way around, going in there and pushing everything that you think is, is the truth on, on people. Wish some of our politicians would embrace that mindset. <laughs> but um, Okay, so talk to us about your career. You said you've been in... Um, you, you spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, where did life take you? Um, and what were your aims and ambitions at that point coming out of university? Yeah, so, so I did this undergrad um, kind of psychology, sociology and, and business. And then, you know, I was like, okay, great. Um, you know, what next? And, and there was kind of the period where I would apply to all these kind of um, postgrad studies and everything else, same approach, right? Sending as much as possible out there and like just kind of seeing what, what sticks. And then probably for some kind of serendipitous thing, I got admitted to LSE in London and 
I still believe it was probably someone, you know, in the admissions office who was like, oh, my son similarly was like a rebel. And like, maybe I, what, you know what I mean? Like one of these incidences where I don't think I really matched the, the criteria to the degree where I thought it would, but, or it should, but it somehow worked out. And so I, I started kind of doing that kind of postgrad journey. And I coincidentally ran into um, someone who would become one of my co-founders at Sandbox, the, the community we set up. And so that was really that moment where kind of I realized, wow, like a lot of the things that I'm really excited about could also be driven by more entrepreneurial efforts and by really shaping our own reality and really building our own platforms. And and so that kind of like led us on this journey. I mean, um, we like five of us, um, I met kind of the rest of the team in, in Zurich and, and five of us essentially the idea was to say, hey, look, at the end of the day, if you have a young person who wants to really initiate change in the world, um, like you're connected in your own fields, but mindset wise, you're much closer to people in other fields. So how about if we bring those people who are considered crazy in their field because they're pushing boundaries and people don't necessarily, you know, resonate with it with other crazy people from other fields and put them all together and build a home around them. And so that was really like what Sandbox has been about. Um, but then, you know, at some point, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about it, um, the kind of inner, you know, we were building all these things and, and things, but um, the question then was, okay, like, do we really understand the impact we're having and do we really understand what's happening here? And so that made me go more into research as well, trying to understand how do we really create environmental social impact? How do we scale that up? How do we derive purpose from that and so on? And so I think the academic direction, and that's when I've been starting to kind of go from one to the other to, to really kind of um, get the understanding of it as well. I mean, it sounds like, I have to say, I wasn't aware of Sandbox, but when I read about it, it just sounded like it was way ahead of its time in terms of cultivating um, an environment of diversity and sort of cross-fertilization of thought across networks that would otherwise never uh, never meet outside a, a conference where people might not talk to each other even. So it sounded quite innovative initiative. At that point, were you aware you were actually engineering some degree of serendipity with Sandbox? It's interesting because after like around a year or so, because we would host a lot of dinners and con like events and things and what would always pop up at dinners and, and these kind of gatherings would be people would always be like, Oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And so like, I like, you know, we got fascinated about like, wow, like that seems a lot of like coincidence is happening. And so the term serendipity started to emerge. And then we started like calling sandbox at some point, like being a kind of serendipity accelerator as well. And these kind of things. Um, but what I found like fascinating then is that I think it, it emerged as something that, that, that intuitively was cultivated. Um, and, and then I think later on, you know, in, in, in the other work, um, it, it, it also emerged again. And so it's almost this beautiful thing that a lot of the kind of most joyful, purpose-driven, successful people around seem to have in common that they intuitively cultivate that. And I found that fascinating how you essentially set yourself up for that. And, and it's really, I mean, Sandbox at the end of the day now is really about this kind of community of people around the world in, in a lot of different countries where you have local ambassadors. So local people who identify people locally on the ground who have that wow factor. So something where if they would talk about their ideas and their, their projects and so at a dinner in the evening, people would go, wow, this is amazing. This is cool. This is crazy. This is like the stuff that really shapes the world. And so we would locally kind of identify these people, um, have local events, and then globally you have conferences, um, you have events, and you have platforms by Facebook and, and other means um, that kind of connect people with each other. And the core idea is really to say, Let's build a community around those people where if you're a member in Nairobi, you can go to Beijing and you always have a couch to crash. You always have 
um, someone you can relate, like if you need an investment, you can call someone. And so it's really this kind of peer-to-peer -peer network of people that is about developing meaningful relationships rather than just kind of a networking type thing. And I think the reason why there's been a lot of identification of members with that community is that it also was part of shaping a lot of the identity of, of, of members in the sense of, to, to your point earlier, Mark, that I think when you, especially in the early days, looked at what we personally faced as the founders as well, we faced, there was no community that we really felt home in because we always felt like it was somehow constraining and like, okay, great, like this is an in-group for lawyers, this is an in-group for artists and whatever, but we never felt like there was a home for just feeling you can be your quote-unquote real self and like just be crazy about things and stuff. And so I think that the reason why sandboxers, um, you know, identify a lot with the community is, is because they bring in their whole self, but also then um, you connect with people in other areas that, that help you kind of make stuff happen. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, YPO, Young Presidents Organization, of what they try and cultivate as well, of cross-fertilization of ideas and networks. Um, which is lovely. Now, you talk a lot in the book about, about purpose and North Stars and, you know, every organisation. I mean, I've been working in advertising for most of my career and in the last 10 years, everyone's been banging on about purpose. And there's a lot of purpose washing and organisations say, yes, we're driven by purpose and it's our clarity. And yeah, we're getting to a point where we've got triple bottom line being embraced by a lot of organisations, but there's still a lot of purpose washing. And something that I think we're all abundantly aware of, even though it's not that main, mainstream in the conversation in the current election cycle, is climate. And if there is one singular purpose that we all face that and, and should embrace is, is addressing the, the, the climate issue. I'm just wondering in terms of how you're seeing things like Sandbox and the work you're doing, that are there initiatives that we're maybe not aware of of where there is there might be solutions to what, the, the, what seems to be an impenetrable problem of how we're going to turn back the direction that we're on through the cross-fertilization of thinking, through serendipitous interaction. Are you, can you reflect on that? Have you any insight or thoughts or hopes around where we're heading? Yeah, and, and it's really something where, so one of the organizations we, we set up, Leaders on Purpose, like is, is very focused on that idea that, you know, a lot of my work has been around social entrepreneurship and working with young people. And I've always found a lot of meaning in that. And I've always found it, it's a great way to kind of, you know, like in a way initiate impact, but actually the real scale for these kind of complex societal problems and really like like tackling them comes through big, big corporates and big, big governments and really getting them on the table and doing things with them. And so in a way, um, that organization leaders on purpose, it's all about saying, how do we bring the corporate leaders and government people who are pushing the envelope? How do we bring them together in a similar kind of almost model of how Sandbox worked in terms of how do you bring them together to, to be with those other ones who are unreasonable enough to really push the boundaries? And then how do we bring them together and, and then essentially like learn from them, identify the patterns and then put it into whatever knowledge outputs we have. And so we have an annual report around this, uh, the Leaders on Purpose CEO study, for example. And, you know, I've, I've been fascinated by, um, so that study, for example, we took 41 of the most successful CEOs in the world, CEOs like uh, Ajay Banga, who's, who's the, the CEO of MasterCard um, and, and, and the CEO of Danone, for example, Emmanuel Faber and others who, you know, in a way, they've been 
trying to bring their corporations who used to be very profit focused and said, how do we link them to the, to the UN sustainable development goals? So how do we link them to the biggest issues in the world? And I found that fascinating because if you try to go deeper into what they've been doing, there's so much to learn from in a way, for example, how they connect the company's purpose, like take MasterCard. What they would do is they would say, okay, traditionally we were a financial services company now we know that one of the biggest problems in the world is financial exclusion so people don't have access to it there's 500 million people um, that they wanted to get into the financial system so they set that north star and said we relate our capability which is you know helping like, like financial transactions to the big issue that people don't have access to financial transactions especially in developing countries and that becomes our new purpose it's related to the sustainable development goals and that's danone has done something similar in all these companies where it's essentially around saying how do we as corporates like link that to the to the bigger issues? And that's where I feel the, the biggest leverage comes because again, they have huge infrastructures, they have access to most of the resources in the world. And if we can get them to relate to the sustainable development goals, which is this big idea of these are the biggest challenges and this is how we can tackle them together, I think that's where the real impact comes. So I'm getting more and more excited about these kind of questions. How do we not only focus on, which I think is extremely important, young people and like elevating them, but also how do we get those people who are in power to really focus on those crazy ideas? Because you know, ideas have to be crazy at the moment. So you have to say something like, I want to lift 500 million people out of poverty because otherwise it's too slow, right? You you need that impetus. And so that's, that's where I see a lot of the, the change happen. Big corporates and getting them excited about it. But to your point, not to the, the greenwashing and uninspired stuff, but really saying, how do we integrate that across the organization? What are action steps that day-to-day -day do that versus just the narrative? A couple of things as you're talking there. You had a great quote. You combined, uh, is it Gota? And I can't, I've read it and I should have, I should have written it down, but it is around, you know, setting unrealistic expectations. And I think that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. And it's really about, to your point, like um, this idea of if you take something or someone as who they could become, right? Yeah. You enable them to get there versus if you just look at the world and say, oh, these are all the constraints, like that's that, right? And I'm, I'm a big believer actually, and I've seen that in a lot of our work, especially in poverty contexts, that like, if you really want to fix big problems, it's about that reframing of saying, we need to look at this in a different way and then, and then tackle it. I found it. Yeah. If you, take, if you take someone as they are, you make them worse. If you take them as what they could be, you make them capable of becoming what they can be. I thought that was a wonderful quote that we'll share in the show notes. Are you aware of Imperative 21? Tell me more. <laughs> it's an initiative because you talk about um, uh, the CEO of Danone and a lot of the, the, there's a guy called Jay Cohen Gilbert who runs B Lab. And he and a group of other people like Lorna Davis, who uh, used to work yeah. for Emmanuel, they've, they're set they've set up a, a imperative 21 really is an initiative that uh, is grounded in the the global goals but really confronting the the outdated outmoded and damaging concept of shareholder primacy um, and milton friedman's legacy damaging legacy from that damned essay he wrote in 1970 whenever it was and they're confronting it and saying it's all very well in Davos for these anti-capitalist capitalists to stand there and say, oh, yeah, we're embracing purpose, but not do anything fast enough. Imperative 21, I believe, is an initiative to try and accelerate the change to challenging um, carbon capitalism and trying to forge a new way forward. 
um, to reframe the way that organisations work and genuinely embrace triple bottom line and to confront the global goals and to target specific sustainable development goals that they can influence. And I think it's something if you're not involved in it, I think you would be an amazing addition to it and you should definitely get involved. And we, if you don't know Lorna, we know her and we could connect you. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. And she actually, she was part of our first summit, actually, of Leaders on Purpose. So it's wonderful yeah. that you saw that. It's literally, mm -hmm. yeah, so that sounds fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, we'll do that. Right, let's jump into the serendipity mindset. Mm -hmm. For those that maybe haven't read the book and aren't as aware of what serendipity is, just a little overview and maybe just then break down the component parts of the mindset. Yeah. I mean, the core idea is really to say, we always want to map everything out. We want to plan everything. And then the unexpected happens and it shapes most of our life. And so it's, you know, how we find a lot of times our love partner. It's how we find our co-founder. It's how we come up with a new idea. Like these things a lot of times happen unexpectedly. And so uh, serendipity is really about this kind of smart luck. That's about the luck that we create ourselves as opposed to the kind of dumb luck or blind luck, which is inheriting something or being born into a good family. That's stuff that we can't influence. And so the beauty then is, once we see serendipity as a process of, of essentially like seeing something in the unexpected and doing something with it, then essentially we, we can prime ourselves to see more unexpected things, but also to connect them differently. And so I'm, you know, it, it kind of, it's, it's, it's really, then you can start creating more meaningful accidents or so more triggers, but also you can make accidents more meaningful. And what I mean with this is that in a way, the kind of process of serendipity then really is imagine this quintessential situation you're in a coffee shop and if you have erratic hand movements like I do, um, you spill a coffee and, you know, there's this person next to you and you sense this kind of connection and, you know, now you have two options. You could either say, oh my God, I'm so sorry, here's a napkin. And then you walk outside and you're like, ah, I should have talked with this person, right? There, there was something there. I don't know what, but there was something. But that's serendipity missed, right? Because there was something unexpected, but you didn't do anything with it. And the other, you know, is obviously you say, oh, I'm so sorry. I was just reading this book that I got really excited about. Just something that kind of sparks a conversation. And then essentially that kind of leading to something potentially or not. But if it leads to something that would be serendipity in action. And so it's really these, you know, all of my love partners or most of my love partners came out of these kind of situations where something unexpected happens. And then we send some kind of connection and you somehow develop out of this. Um, all of my ventures came out of these situations of unexpectedly emerging in an encounter or kind of a session. And so serendipity really about this idea of seeing something unexpected, doing something with it. And that's how 50% of inventions and innovations happens, right? Everything from Viagra to penicillin to you name it. But also that's how a lot of these CEOs and others are really kind of running their companies, that they essentially have a certain idea of what's happening, certain North Star, but then are ready for the unexpected and say, okay, we have to be ready to connect dots once we face an uncertain world. Mm -hmm. You talk in the book about um, tenacity and sagacity. Could you maybe discuss why those characteristics are important? Yeah, I mean, it comes really back to, if you think about, if you trace back how serendipity happens over time. So take an example, let's, let's take the potato washing machine. It's one of my favorites because <laughs> it's like so kind of out of the blue, but it's also something that I think initially like, um, shows us why that is the case. So essentially, there's a company in China, the largest company in the world when it comes to washing machines, refrigerators, like white goods. And they got calls from farmers and, and farmers told them, well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in your washing machine and it always breaks down, like that is terrible. And so what would we usually do, you know, when something unexpected, when an unexpected trigger is there, 
we would say, well, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. It's, it's made for clothes, right? It's not made for, for, for potatoes. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? There is, that is unexpected, but there's a lot of farmers in China. And so, you know, we might as well build a dirt filter in it and make it a potato washing machine. And that's how the potato washing machine emerged. But the point here is that it wasn't only about seeing the trigger and connecting dots to like a bigger problem, but it's also about having now the tenacity to actually develop it into a product and actually following through with it. And that's the thing that you see with a lot of people. They might have a brilliant idea or they might have an encounter where they sense there might be something, but they don't follow through with it. And so without that grit, without that tenacity, it just doesn't happen in the end because serendipity as a process, it's not just running into someone or seeing something. It's about actually doing something with it and having the grit to, to bring it to a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. The other term used uh, in the book is the serendipity space. Um, could you unpack that as well? Yeah, that's actually, it comes back to our Goethe quote as well, right? Like, what is the potentiality out there? What is all the potential dots that could be there and all the potential dots that could be connected? And, you know, I think a lot of times we get primed. I mean, I grew up in Germany and I then went to business school and like you get primed in this idea that like you go from A to B, right? So A being a problem and then B being the solution and you have a linear like line from the one to the other. But actually, if you would map these two as landscapes and you would say there's all the potential problems and all the potential solutions, you realize that actually a lot of times you might not be able to clearly define the problem in the first place because a lot of times it might emerge. But also like a lot of the solutions come to you very serendipitously. And, and we, you know, think about your CV, right? Like when you look at your CV and you try to trace it back, like, yes, like you might tell me the story that you went from A to B. But I know that most probably, like a lot of times you went to C or you went to D, right? And so it's really that kind of thing of saying that we get used to this idea that there's a linearity in things and that we can plan things out. But life is much more like a squiggle. And, and, and that is what, 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 in a way, I think once we get more realistic about this, we also get more realistic about what kind of grid we need, what kind of tenacity we need and so on. Because then we don't see something that doesn't go our way as a problem, but we see it as an experimentation towards seeing more in that space and connecting dots differently. And that leads us to a potential potentiality that, that we might not even have seen. I saw you speak at, I think it was the, what was the summit? That was the Mo Gaudet's uh, Happiness Summit that happened recently mm -hmm. online. I can't remember what it was called, but um, he, uh, his book, um, which again, my brain's gone blank, The Happiness Something, uh, Happy, Solve for Happy. I, I He talks about um, his morning routine that he'll always have, if he's meditated or his coffee and done something, he'll have half an hour to 40 minutes where he just sits and he's got a name for it, his term, and it's like his own time. And he just lets his mind wander. Um in a way that, I, I've, and I've tried it a few times, I, I need to become more disciplined at creating that time because I often jump in straight into the day. Um, but when I have done it, it is incredible, the stream of consciousness of where it takes you and the ideas that are generated. So everything's clearly in there. Or whether it's uh, something floating around in the ether um, in some sort of... Uh, uh, quantum matrix that an idea comes to you that there's some from somewhere but it is bizarre how he talks about the development of ideas thinking concepts that come in that precious time um it, it is something that f for me feels to be a component part 
of a mindset as well of having that quiet time as well as having a mindset to uh, have a propensity to turn to the person next to you in a queue in the bank or on a supermarket, even with a mask on and get talking to them or when you spill a coffee. And I just wondered if you've got any thoughts on, on that ability. To, you mentioned being in the shower. It's often a time when people have ideas and whether it's conditioned. And, and I, I don't think you talked about the neurological element of, of serendipity. But there is something I think we've all had it as well. And so I'm rambling a little bit here is when we get into our, our waking states, we get into that alpha theta part of our brain when we often wake up and have an idea and go, oh, or you're falling, about to fall asleep and an idea comes to you. And I wonder if there's something there that there's, there's a component part of serendipity that we should be considering. Uh, absolutely. And, and to your point, like I, a lot of times serendipity happens in those moments, obviously, when we don't expect it, even with our subconscious kind of bringing it to us, right? Because we, we might not, the, the shower eureka moment is, is the quintessential example, right? Because we think it just came to us, but no, no, no. It was literally your subconscious working and working and working and working and bringing it together because now finally you gave it a little bit of space to do that. Um, or it's the kind of two o'clock waking up for people who like, you know, some people read before they go to bed into a lot of different things because they know that their subconscious will work on it. And so I wouldn't recommend it because I think it makes your sleep kind of less good. Um, but what it does is it actually primes your subconscious to work on that overnight. And so it's fascinating um, to, to me exactly what are healthy spaces to allow for that. And I've always been a big fan of this idea of maker versus manager schedule because, you know, most of us are on this kind of manager schedule in terms of meeting, 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 running, 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 lizard brain, fight or flight, you know, stuff where essentially you don't have any breathing space for anything to emerge or for any dots to connect. Um, versus then like the maker schedule that a lot of creatives need, right? When you're writing something or when you, you need uninterrupted time for a period of time, and if you don't have it, you can't get anything done. And so uh, in a way, how do we protect that kind of time? And so something I do, for example, is the first two hours in the morning or even more sometimes I block for myself. I make it an appointment with myself where I then work on one creative thing where I can completely immerse myself. And that is similar to that where then that stream of consciousness can happen easier because I can actually focus on any idea now that could come that relates to it or anything that could actually happen in relation to it and so on. And so to your point, like the space might be a complete like empty space, right? If you go on a walk and you just kind of don't think about anything um, or meditation or other things, but also then this kind of idea of packaging something that is focused time on something particular so that actually we give ourselves the permission to, to be able to connect something in a more meaningful way. And what I've seen a lot in, in businesses particularly is that people don't have the space to do that and then at the end of the day they look back and they're like oh my god i was so busy today but i wasn't really productive and i think that's kind of really mm -hmm. um, what it comes down to as well what's your your thought on the importance of embracing fear because um a lot of what you talk about for me feels like it's uh if you're trying to coach or or encourage people to embrace a serendipity mindset a lot of it comes down to trust trusting in the process trusting in having faith that you're going in the right direction that failure is not failure it's just a step towards you developing whether uh, on a path to what is deemed to be success or but so many of us are conditioned to think rationally and as you said you were given this linear a to b path and if things don't go right we get fearful and think oh something's going to go wrong it's not working for us how do we start to 
coach people to embrace fear and 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 be more trusting that um you know that that phrase i can't remember who said it life's happening for us not to us it seems to be wound up in serendipity as well absolutely and you know it's interesting because if you break down fear into like fear of failure fear of loss fear of the future fear of, like i feel there's so many components not to like that what fear could be um one of the things that i found fascinating is i always remember this conversation i've had with someone in a restaurant in london um i asked him like so how much serendipity do you have in your life and he was like well none before i was 25 and after i was 25 all the time i was like well what what changed and he was like i went through a journey where i started to trust that i'm worthy of it and and you know it's i found it fascinating because he was in that situation where when he worked as a waiter he has such great energy He's very humble. He's a great person. So people would always offer stuff to him. They would always say, hey, should I put you in touch with this person? You should be an XYZ job or you should be this and this. And he always kind of in his mind, it was like, oh, no, people like me are not supposed to XYZ. People like me are not supposed to this. I'm not ready for this. I'm not this. And so it was literally this kind of idea that I think comes back to our conversation earlier when we talked about childhood, like how much imprinting there is in our childhood around limitations that we put on ourselves but also that then society in a way kind of manifests and, and reinforces. And, and so I'm a big believer in working on both like the structural constraints and that there is a lot around how do we essentially build societal mobility and everything else into every system. And at the same time, then that mindset question of how do we essentially in every situation work on exactly those things of sense of worthiness, sense of like being able to tackle something and, and that self-confidence. And I think fear, like if you think about the, 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 the the moments where I feel a lot of fear, it's when there's so much ambiguity that I'm like, oh my God, like this could all go down the drain. Um, my identity will be threatened, existential things, you know, like you get into like these spirals and you're like, wow, like actually when you step back out of it, like it never is as big as you think it is, right? And so it's kind of, I've been a big fan of perspective taking of these approaches where you say, whenever you are in the moment where you feel a lot of fear or self-doubt or things like that, like taking out and say, what would I advise a friend to do? Or how would I, if a friend told me exactly this, what would I tell them? And then sometimes I'm like, oh my God, I would just tell my friend, chill out, meditate, <laughs> sit down and like today, tomorrow will be okay again. And so it's kind of, you know, these, these periods where I feel a lot of times that, um, yeah, like being in, 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 in those moments, um, you know, one of the things I've seen work is obviously meditation and, and things that really ground and that really allow us to put things into perspective emotionally, but also consciously putting ourselves into perspective via, you know, asking ourselves what would X, Y, Z do and, and then putting ourselves in that. But again, I think there's so much in there, right, in terms of which kind of thing. I feel like we could spend a whole yeah. nice red one conversation in the evening on, on that. <laughs> okay, we'll have to do that at some point when the, the mask wearing ends. Um, I want to talk. I wanted to talk about polarization, but could you just talk a bit about um, how the book's been received and whether you're taking it into organisations? I know you've talked about your your um, uh, leaders on purpose, but are businesses and and leaders within organisations embracing this and seeing it as as I describe it? It's almost like a playbook for better organisational um, behaviour. And is that and is that part of what you're doing individually or part of your role at NYU? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and it's it's 
you know, I find it interesting because you know how a lot of people talk about diversity and diversity of ideas of mm -hmm. people and X, Y, Z. And I feel what's missing a lot in the conversation is with all diversity, what is the common denominator? Because if you if you put five diverse people into a boardroom, nothing happens, right? Because like they just talk like across each other because everyone has different life experiences, everyone has different X, Y, Z. But once you find the common denominator in terms of what are the values we're basing this on, what are the whatever it is, then it starts to happen. And I think that's kind of some of the key premises of developing a serendipity mindset to say, at the end of the day, yes, we need diversity. We need kind of things that, that come out of unexpected places, but we also need an incentive to be able to connect dots between different areas, between different people. And that really comes down to building these common denominators. And one of the things that um, I've been doing a lot with companies there is to say, okay, when you talk about values, like, let's get real. Like, you tell me these are your values. How does that in every meeting that you have, when you make a decision or when someone like proposes an idea, how do you make sure that people tick the boxes of the five values? Like if you say humble humility is a core value, well then is is it is is that embedded in that decision? And so really kind of forcing people to get into the day-to-day -day routines, rituals, and everything else, to your point, that it's not just kind of a narrative that's out there, but actually that it allows us to bring people together. And then you have really cool stuff happening, right? Then you will have meetings where um, people start asking things like, what surprised you last week? So let's say if a core value of an organization is curiosity, right? Then you would start meetings with, what surprised you last week? What was unexpected? What was something that happened? And what you're doing now is you're giving people permission to talk about things that might you know, usually not be there because you think, oh, our marketing pl plan failed because we didn't plan X, Y, Z. No, no, you're turning this around and say, hey, actually now our values are that we are curious, which means that we are open to new ideas, even if it wasn't what we thought before. And I'm a big fan actually there of, of um, the Project Funeral, which is, you know, it, it's a post-mortem exercise, which to me embodies that like, I, I do that in organizations that have um, like values like curiosity, playfulness and so on. And the idea is when you um, have a project that failed, usually what you do in a company is you try to hide it, right? Like no one has an incentive to talk about a project that doesn't work. You try to hide it away. Problem being, you never really learn from each other because like we learn from failure the most, right? From things that don't work. But also you don't have a real environment of trust because you don't feel safe to say that didn't work. So the project funeral does the opposite. It says, Whenever a project doesn't work out, the project manager speaks in front of other project managers from other divisions and says, this is what we learned from it, and this is what we would do differently. And so it's not celebrating failure, it's celebrating the learning from failure. And so in this example that I love is it's a, it's a company in, in, in the Netherlands. They had this window frame, and so the idea was the light wouldn't reflect when it comes in. And so, you know, it's an amazing technology, but they didn't realize that people wouldn't pay a lot of money just to have a window that, like, doesn't reflect light. So they presented that and they said, look, we learned that next time we need to understand the market better, yale yale. So someone in the audience is like, oh my God, have you considered what this would mean for solar? If we would take that technology into solar panels, imagine how much energy that can absorb. And that's how part of the energy division emerged completely serendipitously. But again, it wasn't just luck. It was essentially they created a ritual that essentially embraced their core values. And by doing this, they, they created serendipity. And so that's what I'm most excited about. Like, how do we force companies into practice what you preach, but also let's work on these values and other things that then enable you to have more serendipity. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think there, yeah, and particularly even across industries as well, if that could happen between organizations that have to solve problems. Can you imagine if we, if you managed to get Google and, and Facebook and uh, uh, Microsoft and Apple together to, to look at 
solving the issues that we're facing with social media and the poisonous and damaging effect of it, having just watched The Social Dilemma. Um, yeah, um, anyway, um, yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I think the idea, as soon as you're talking about it, it made me think of having a values-driven agenda. Can you imagine if every company had to have every agenda for every meeting to start with their four core values and, and that is leading the agenda, not the the actual sort of uh, the topics at hand. That would be wonderful. Um, I need to talk to some clients about that. Um, polarisation. Um, clearly, uh, regardless of the country that you're living in, some more than most, there's mass polarisation, political polarisation driven by identity politics and disagreement seems to be very pronounced in, in many instances and it does seem to be stagnating society to a large degree and yet we're also seeing massive strides forward in diversity inclusion um, in a positive light and I think your reflection on um, how to actually move it forward by having a common denominator is a brilliant addition to it but why, why do you think there is this tension? Because if, if, if a serendipity mindset, if we are going to solve some of the biggest problems we face on our planet, we have to find a way, a common denominator to bring these polarised groups together in a, in a conversation. Is there something, do you think there's something within the serendipity mindset that can be leveraged um, by our political leaders to drive... Um, more positive behaviors and to maybe solve some of the challenges that we're facing. It's interesting because uh, so a lot of my work is, has been in Kenya and in Kenya, you know, you have over 40 tribes and those 40 tribes, they are so kind of, you know, uh, in their own worlds and, and you, you have a lot of friction among tribes. And so it's the most extreme of polarizations you can imagine. And um, one of the things that we've been working on there is to, to understand how do people, and in this case, especially entrepreneurs, cross these different boundaries? And how do they, if they are from one tribe, how do they connect to another tribe? Or how do they do that? And so there's a lot of really fun kind of things coming out of it. Everything from, you know, how they pull in friends who are from the other tribe to then kind of uh, like respond to the phone call of the governor who's from their own tribe and all these kind of different things that are more like tactics towards like, like actually working on it. But one of the things that I found fascinating, um, there's this one entrepreneur, um, Essentially, what he does is he when he needs a governor from another tribe um, and, you know, usually, you know, kind of in that case, it would be IT entrepreneurs and they need um, business from the, the government. And so they have to somehow connect with the governor. And a lot of times governors would only hand it to people from their own tribe. And so or, or, or in general, um, that's that's how a lot of these deals would, would get made. And so he would be like, OK, great. I know that we don't have a common denominator when it comes to tribes, but we both are Christians. And so essentially what I will do is I will meet this guy in the church and I will sit next to him in the church. And then afterwards I will be like, governor, my God, like Jesus is, and, and so really kind of going into what is the common denominator here and then reframing it away from we're from different tribes to we are believers or we are X, Y, Z. And I think there's a lot in that in terms of how do we think differently about what, 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 what takes us apart from each other versus what brings us together. And I think at the moment, you know, I coming, you know, from a country where we've seen demagogues and where we've seen a lot of different things happening, it scares me to see the kind of Republican Democrat kind of polarization because you're like, wow, if you're so embedded in like those kind of tribal dynamics um, and then everything else doesn't matter, 
again, like what is the new common denominator? What is the common denominator in terms of are we all Americans or are we all X, Y, Z? And so I think there's 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 a lot around this kind of question of what are these kind of um, things, common denominators that, that, that really kind of we can use. And I think, you know, politicians, um, I've always found it fascinating in terms of if you have, um, you know, a new generation hopefully soon emerge that, that would be able to do that, um, to, to really kind of focus on that again. And I think a lot of my hope comes from essentially when seeing millennials at the moment and Gen Z, right, who are kind of much more into the question of like inclusion and, and really bringing people together. And, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's fascinating to look at it from a perspective of Kenya because you're like, I've seen that before and I've seen all the rhetorics and all the kind of things that are happening at the moment. Um, and I'm just hoping that, you know, we will have more and more politicians who will actually again speak the language of this is what we have in common and mm -hmm. not just for rhetorical use, but actually for the, for the fact that, that there is, right? And so I think it's also a lot about, it's not only about the kind of partisanship and the kind of polarization itself, but it's also about those who are not within that polarization you make a choice by not being part of. And so it's, it's, I think that to me is the most important thing also to actually realize that at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's up to everyone to be part of There's, something. Uh, someone else we interviewed um, uh, about a year ago called Stephen Heck, who mm -hmm. runs a Million Peacemakers. He's a senior person at the YPO. And Million Peacemakers has a model called Nonflict, mm -hmm. which is essentially a five-minute model to to broker uh, conversation and uh, conflict resolution in the most intractable of situations. So they've worked a lot with Catholics and Protestants in, in Northern Ireland. They've worked with Israelis and Palestinians in the Gaza Strip to huge effect, to huge positive advantage. And, and one of the, the, the first things they start with in the, in the four-step process is putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And it's something I think in one of your in your serendipity mindset questions is, do you put yourself in someone else's shoes to try and understand the perspective where they're coming from? And I think that's something that we all we all have to do um, yeah. more often. Yeah, because, Mark, exactly on that point, like I, I just kind of remembered there's this amazing um, organization to exactly your point that essentially it's a, a Jewish wonderful lady who said, OK, look, if you look at the kind of Jewish-Palestinian or Israel-Palestinian kind of conflict, one of the key problems was that, in a way, people, you know, grow into this kind of partisanship, and, and there's so much kind of historical, like, like baggage that, mm -hmm. that is there that it's very tough even for enlightened people to do a lot about it. And what they would do is they would essentially um, let people take care of each other for a while. So what they did in London, for example, would be they would ask Muslims to protect a synagogue or they would ask Jews to protect a, a kind of religious, you know, like, a, like, like an imam. Or, or a, a, so what happens here is that once you put yourself into someone else's shoes and then even more so, once you are becoming their protector, then actually you develop buy-in because you're like, okay, it's my responsibility now to protect them and and i love that idea the organization is called i am your protector and like it's really about this idea that once you get the roughest of the roughest people and they feel responsibility for someone that actually is the biggest form of empathy because now you feel responsible for them and i think like when you think about partisanship and everything else like the mechanisms that allow us to essentially be in someone else's shoes but also walk in their shoes for mm -hmm. a bit right and yeah. kind of do that's where it gets really interesting yeah. You used a term, I can't remember where it was I read it or heard it, about the very probable. I think you said it. What is very probable, but the improbable is about to happen. 
Yeah, it, and, and it's definitely something, you know, in the way that the, the unexpected is very probable, right? That like it is everywhere. Like it is, like once you I open your eyes to it, like it's very improbable that my laptop falls down, that our connection crashes, that your lamp falls on your head. But if you add up all these small unexpected things, you add up with a very high probability of something happening, right? And it's, it's that kind of moment, right? Where people always ask, how can that happen? Didn't they prepare for 20 hours and now still they have a glitch? And you're like, yeah, but the potential number of glitches is so uh -huh. high that it becomes um, very, very probable. Yeah, no, I just, yeah, I think I thought that was a really interesting. Um, we do the quick for questions, but where do you think you'll, I mean, you, you're, you're embracing serendipity. And by the way, what is your serendipity score? <laughs> it varies. It varies. I mean, it's interesting because I feel, you know, we didn't talk about it yet, but obviously the serendipity score is all about saying, you know, ask yourself like these kind of different questions and then like rank yourself. And the, the, the most important thing there is not ranking in relation to someone else, but ranking in terms of vis-a-vis -vis yourself like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And what I've realized with myself is that I'm actually fluctuating. Some weeks I'm, I'm kind of like in the upper brackets. And then some weeks I'm like, I haven't done any of this this week. And I haven't done, and since COVID, I mean, I realized also that obviously I want to add like a much bigger virtual part to it now as well, because there's so much around uh, virtual serendipity at the moment that, that I know. could be priced. That's what I was going to say, because I did it. I did it and I looked at myself when Bettina and I were here all the time at Neuhaus. And I was out doing countless meetings and I hit 159 as a score, which I think is really high. But then I thought, well, hang on a second. If I look at it over the last three, four months and I did it again and I dropped to about 133, I think it was significantly because of not being able to do the things that I would could do. So I think it, you're right. I think there should be a, a COVID-19 version of it that we should all do. But I'm going to put all that in, in the in the show notes as well. So if you're okay, is there anything else you want to talk about briefly about the book um, and about your hopes for it and where you think you'll be before we jump into the quick fire questions? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the bigger picture really being that because I've seen it work as both a life philosophy and the kind of daily practice, and it's brought so much enthusiasm to my life, so much hope, so much joy, and I've seen it with so many others, I feel like if that can be like imbued in like, like you know school systems and universities and companies it's really about this kind of reframing the uncertainty and the unexpected from a threat into an ally and i feel like there's so much in there when i look at kids nowadays and the kind of the fragility of the world right and the fragility of everything and i think as long as we educate people into this idea of you can plan things and like you can map all this out and then the opposite happens and it has this cognitive dissonance in everyone. You're like, no, like, let's be more realistic about how like really happens. I think it, it gives us this kind of like liberation that it is okay to sometimes wing it. And it doesn't mean you're out of control. It just means that you let go of your illusion of control. And I think that is really kind of, um, to me at the, at the core of this, to embrace this as a, as an active style to lead during uncertainty rather than something that just is passive and happens to us. Um, quick fire questions. Uh, what principles do you stand by? You know, I, I've, I've had to learn the hard way. I've, I've made decisions in my life where I wasn't happy about. And I realized when I look back to those decisions, they've, they've kind of sometimes come out of places of fear, out of places of like not being um, fully kind of who I feel I want to be. And so I think like one core principle definitely is this idea of like being truthful, having integrity and being like, like defining these non-negotiables in terms of what is it in my life that I, that I value. So I think integrity, loyalty, but integrity and loyalty you know, they can conflict sometimes. And so I used to be someone who always put loyalty as the absolute first. 
And I think I've learned in life that sometimes that can get you into trouble. And so now I put integrity first and loyalty second, and then all these other, you know, important things like kindness, curiosity, and so on, that I think kind of bring that picture together. That's nice. Um, what hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? It's interesting because I think, to me, the toughest decisions come from cutting relationships, cutting cutting ideas off, cutting essentially this idea of like closing something. Um, because I'm a big believer in this kind of regret minimization that like when I look back, I regret the things I haven't done rather than the things I have done. But also I only want to cut things or people off if there is like a really good reason for it. And I think I, I've, I've certainly had people in my life where I was very close to, but I it felt relatively toxic or I felt differently. And so I think these kind of being able then at some point to say, look, like there is a boundary here and that's that. I think that that was tough, but also, um, you know, helpful. Sounds bound up with integrity and loyalty. Uh, where do you go to discover your new ideas? Um, Any little bars in the West Village? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, usually I like I have a couple of, of friends who are wonderful ideators, so usually it's kind of conversations with them over a red wine, that kind of uh, thing. Sounds good. Um, aside from what you focus on doing uh, with the serendipity mindset, which is seems to be all-encompassing and could address many large problems, what, what's, what in your view is the biggest problem we face as humanity that needs solving? I mean, we talked about a lot of the big issues, and I think we're we're working right, like climate change and and the big issues that have to be solved. But I think, on the on the kind of, I'm I feel like everything starts in like early childhood education and like how we get kids like you know at home and then in in, in education like how do we help kids to develop that sense of worthiness? Because I feel like a lot of stuff that's wrong in the world comes from people feeling insecurity, especially men feeling insecurity mm. and then overcompensating. And then there's a war because someone feels, you know, all these kind of, if you look at the wars in history, like it's usually men who kind of like had something questioned in their own kind of like, you know, I don't even want to go into that, but like, it's kind of these, these things where in a way masculinity, you know, this kind of toxic masculinity type, which is really about, um, boys not learning when they grow up to embrace their kind of more feminine side and then vice versa, like in a way, we're just not used to kind of understanding our holistic selves because we, we don't feel that it's supposed to be X, Y, Z. And so I'm, I'm a big believer of, of like, in a way, if we can start early on in parenting, but also then in schools to really have people embrace their holistic self rather than, you know, putting them into boxes. Like I think everything else in the world will be so much better because they will grow into individuals who will make decisions not based out of fear, but based out of like, you know, mm-hmm. vision and purpose, hopefully. It sounds a bit like you're describing what your mum did for you. <laughs> so um, if you had four people from history you'd invite to your dinner party and a, gla- a bottle of your red wine to come up with new ideas and solve some problems uh, and plan for a better future, who would they be? That's a great question. And it, it's, it, it would change probably any time you ask me. But I think at the moment, I've always been a huge, huge, huge fan of uh, Mohammed Yunus, actually, because he... Um, you know, I mean, he came up with microcredit, with social business, with yeah. so many different things that really shaped our world. But the humility and grace that he always has had in his kind of how he went about, I find inspiring. I think he's a great idea sparing um, person. Um, so he would be there. Um, I've, I've always found very interesting the kind of um, the, the, the dynamics around Mahatma Gandhi in the sense that I've always been fascinated by how peaceless is the kind of protest if then it becomes a means of actually being quite forceful and so i feel like i'd love to learn more about like how to 
like institutionalized movements and like really kind of create movements around something. So I think he's been really great at this. Um, I've also, you know, in, in, in terms of, if I think about people like Goethe, like I would probably put Goethe and, and Socrates on the, on the other two, because Goethe is the kind of like the brain who's like, think about everything and puts out there similar to Shakespeare type. And then Socrates just, he just asked great questions. Right. And like, like really kind of, I think if we would ask more questions and like, push less solutions to people but actually ask better questions like i think the world would be in a better place so socrates would definitely be there okay that's a sounds like a fabulous dinner party yeah um because of time i'm going to jump ahead uh what would your advice be to someone about to graduate go study that uh has a dream a goal a grand ambition but has been told forget it it's impossible aside from go and read my serendipity mindset book it's interesting because in a way, if you think about what really shapes the world, there's this beautiful idea that the world is usually shaped by unreasonable people, right? Because the reasonable people are in their boxes and they don't, they will never change anything. And so I, I think I would always say, look, like at the end of the day, take any advice you can get. And then essentially, you know, like, you know, discard to your prevail in terms of how, what you feel makes most sense here. And, and I think I'm a big fan of embracing big, crazy ideas. And, and I, you know, I, I have to say though, I'm also a big fan of, of, of calculated risk. And so I think it's always about saying, how do you set yourself up for something where, you know, for example, if you work in a bank or something and then you have this big crazy idea now, or if you are in a graduate program or an undergrad program, how do you set yourself up in a way that you can pay back your bills, right? And you, you have to do things, but at the same time, explore different areas. And I think Leila, who's a good friend of mine, she has this beautiful thing where, you know, you just pocket five or 10% for your crazy idea and you you work on this and then, you know, you hedge your bets. And I think that's what I would always do. I would say, work on the crazy idea, but hedge it with like other things that, that could give you grounding. Good answer. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> that's a great question, especially my partner's so much into music. And I always forget titles. So I would be like, when I listen to a song, I, I remember it, but usually I don't um, don't that much. I always love Beautiful Day of, of U2 because I feel there's so much emotion and so much tragic and... And, and, you know, I, I usually listen to it when, when I went through breakups. So I feel, I feel like it's, there's, there's a lot in that song. Um, when you sing it, you feel a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of beautiful and not so beautiful emotions. Yeah, great band. Seen them four times. Yeah, definitely. I'm with oh. you on that one. Um, best uh, series or film during lockdown? I, I got into Suits because what I like about Suits, um, it's these kind of two high-powered lawyers. And I found it fascinating how much in there it is about connecting dots, right? They would like get a case and then they have to do something with it and relate it to something. And so my, my serendipity mind always somehow, mm -hmm. you know, um, loves these kind of things where serendipity pops up unexpectedly. And I feel in that there's a subtle thing that even in law, serendipity plays a big role, but also Suits is just very, you know, I like the characters. And okay. Uh, last two questions. Uh, what book would you like us to offer listeners that come up with the best comments on Instagram or on the website other than yours? I think Viktor Frankl's search for meaning, especially yeah. at the moment where I think finding meaning in such a difficult period um, is at the core. So, yeah. Great answer. Final question. Who should we interview next? Oh, I mean, do you, how long do you have? I mean, I feel like there's so many people who have amazing things to say. Um, but uh, but I, I, I feel like depending on what you're looking for, but when I think about curiosity, there's a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, she, she wrote a book. Um, about um, entrepreneurial dilemma and essentially how every creator has always the kind of dark side and light side and, and this kind of idea that a lot of time out of this paradox um, comes like a lot of the kind of 
uh, creative things and 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 I think she could be great to 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 interview um and and I think I'm I'm trying to remember how the the book is called um but uh, her name is Jessica Carson and I think um she she would be great because she you know she's been running innovation at the American Psychological Association at the same time she writes her book and she she does all these other things but like in a way I think someone who at such a young age does so many things and connects dots all the time but has this beautiful curiosity like when she walks around like you literally every moment she has some kind of moment of wonder of curiosity of seeing something and well we always ask our guests to make the connection so Bettina will follow up and ask for mm -hmm. an intro that'd be wonderful um well just have to wrap up thank you very much for your time and I acknowledge you for just uh what seems to be a wonderful purposeful vision that you have um and for the for your own tenacity uh and and lack of procrastination getting on and writing this book because it's you know I've been struggling to think about I've been thinking about writing a piece about serendipity for a long time and you've just managed to create this masterpiece that uh, like I say is a, a wonderful playbook that everyone should embrace and start to practice and certainly go through the serendipity score to to test because I think it it's a fantastic discipline that we should all embrace so yeah, just thank you for your um, for your vision and your energy and your enthusiasm, and uh, really look forward to seeing where the the work that you will continue to do, both individually and collectively with the organisations you're working with. And well, thank, thank you so much. Thank for you very much. Time. Yeah, wonderful conversation. Great questions, by the way. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Okay. Thanks okay. so much. All right. Thank Thanks very much. Bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.